Hey, you're listening to Chew On That, and here's what we're chewing on today. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been loving this series. I've loved digging deeply into the scriptures and dissecting the life, story, and journey of Paul. And it, it's kind of taken a life of its own. I mean, here we are in a series on the book of Romans, and we're four weeks in, and we haven't even looked at Romans chapter 1, verse 1 yet. But it's, it's because I really want you to know Paul. I really want you to understand and ultimately love him in the way I've come to love him. This melancholy, borderline morose man who, in spite of all his failures and flaws and deficiencies, literally changed the world. Today, though, let's continue a teaching I started last week that we're calling When. Hi, welcome to Chew On That. Today, we're chewing on Pastor Sean's message, When. Well, the second half of Sean's message, When, from the series Romans, the greatest letter ever written. Today, my guest is the very noisy but very refined Dr. Jim Wolfinski. Say hi, Jim. <laughs> hi, Jim. <laughs> Just started cracking open a bag of, I don't know, M&Ms. I don't know what nice he's got Cheetos over there. Cheetos over here, you know? <laughs> So hi, Scott. Jim, tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a retired physician, uh, practice pediatrics, allergy. Uh, I teach at the medical college at uh, St. Norbert's. Uh, family of five children. My wife and I have been married for 46 years. And uh, and I have been at Life Church. we have, for two and a half years. We came one Sunday. Actually, it's the week I retired, and we never left. That's awesome. What was it about Life Church that you were like, oh, I kind of like this place? You know, I, I, I came because I wanted to worship God without anything else on my mind. Um, and I just loved the worship and the, the messages were very refreshing. Um, and every Sunday I could just worship God with all my heart. That's awesome. I dig that. So we're in the middle of this series, or we're starting in this series of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. And so what are your first impressions on the series so far? I mean, I think we're four weeks in maybe. Oh, sure. So um, one other thing about me is that I love teaching the Bible. And I taught adults in Sunday school for almost 20 years. And so I've taught courses on series on Romans and have read it. And and I, and I really like the series because it, it really helps make the Apostle Paul come alive in ways that I hadn't quite appreciated before. Mm, yeah, that's cool. All right. Well, let's, I know that there's going to be a lot to talk about. So let's just jump right in uh, to the first uh, soundbite from Sean's message. It's in this environment, in this city, that Paul and Barnabas stay for the next year, preaching to and teaching these new believers. It's actually here in Antioch that Jesus followers are called Christians for the very first time. And it was actually intended to be a term of insult or a term of abuse. But these believers, they, they took it as a term of endearment. They took it as a compliment that they could bear the name of Christ, which comes from the Greek word Christos. It means anointed one. And it was used as a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So in essence, the term Christian, it means follower of the Messiah or follower of the anointed one. And for these people, for them to be dubbed as followers of the Messiah was quite the turn of events. Because Antiochians, they were infamous across the empire. They were known as filthy and foul, and they had that unruly reputation largely because of sexual practices that even ancient Rome rated excessive. You know, growing up, I never really knew, like, when the label Christian, you know, started. So it's all these things are always fascinating to me to learn 
when something was you know developed or when we started calling something something and why we called it that something. And so it was interesting to hear that this is the first time that that believers in Christ were called Christians. And I mean, it makes sense. It's not like this really surprising etymology. Is it etymology? Entomology? Uh, one's like the study of bugs and one's the study of words. Uh, etymology is the study of words. Right. What's entomology is bugs. Oh. So there's no... Unless em- words bug you, in etymology. which case. <laughs> so it, may, it makes me wonder, like, this label of being a Christian, like in today's world, that that's not something that people... I mean that not a lot of people have a lot of respect for, right? Like, oh, you're a Christian. Well, you must want to vote this way or you must want to protest this thing or you must want to whatever. And so I'm wondering what, like, what are your thoughts on like this label of being a Christian? So, so I think back in, back in that day to be labeled a Christian, help somebody know how you were set apart from the culture, from other different groups in the religious uh, traditions or something like that. Um, And for years, I was very proud to be called a Christian, um, period. But unfortunately, the word has been co-opted a little bit um, in our culture where people now start saying, you know, there has to be some sort of a modifier with a Christian. So it's like a political thing or it's a, you know, it's a, uh, educational thing or something like that. And so I really prefer to go with, well, here we call people like Jesus guys and Jesus girls or, but I think to be called Christ followers is something that I could really um, say to anyone. And I don't have to then say I'm a Christ follower, but I'm not whatever other labels that people put on. Yeah. I mean, I dig that because I don't, I want to be known as being Christ like, I mean, obviously I'm never going to be Christ I'm never like I'm never going to be Christ, right? right? Clearly, right? But I want to I want to always carry myself in a way that, if it's not like Jesus would, at least in a way that Jesus would be proud of, you know, or that it, you know. And so for me, that's what being a Christian means, and it's got nothing to do with how I feel about what you're doing or what I think you're doing wrong or my opinion or my judgment or my anything. That it's got everything to do with like, boy, I don't care what you look like, I don't care what you're wearing or where you come from or who you love or what I'm just going to love you like Jesus did. Oh, sure. Because to me, if, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Christ, then the people we interact with, they should be able to predict how we're going to behave. They should say, oh, in this setting, because you're, you claim to be a follower of Christ, you're going to act in a certain way. Um, and that gets the word out that, um, that sometimes gets in people's way nowadays. Uh, that label of Christian. So better to use other terms, I think, for people to understand us better. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't want, I don't want people to find out I'm a Christian and then just make assumptions about me from that. I'd rather them watch how I act or how I talk and then, and then, and then find out, you know, that I'm a Christian. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, boy, because I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but I've, 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 I've heard, like, of all the Christians I know, like, you're the one that I like. You know, and I'm like, well, what? boy, I mean, thanks, but boy, that makes me feel bad for all the Christians that you've encountered to this point. You know? Like, in what ways do you think, Jim, that we're screwing up Christ's name? So, so it reminds me of a poem, if I could share with you, um, um, that I've had in my head for a long time. It says, um, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the things that you do and the words that you say. People read what you write and hear what, and see what you do. 
So what is the gospel according to you? Mm. Yeah, that's good. I dig that. I dig that. But inside the city, y'all, something miraculous was happening. The message of Jesus was sweeping through the streets and every Sunday these early believers were crowding into homes in every neighborhood, rich and poor alike, so they could celebrate the day of the resurrection, which they called the Lord's Day. So, I mean, so this, this feeds on what we were just talking about, that if, that if in fact Christians weren't Christ-like or weren't Jesus-like, but were in fact political animals or they were, I don't know, economic animals or they were... I don't know, self-serving animals. Well, then for sure, why would anyone be excited to be called a Christian, much less why would anyone be excited to like be surrounded by Christians or go to church with Christians? Or So it's easy to see that in a world like today where so many Christians might have, I don't know, sullied the name of Christ in Christ's name by either an accident or on purpose, right? By just being human, Right, it's easy to see why people wouldn't flock. But like when you hear this story of the people of Antioch, like, like can't waiting for Sundays, not being able to wait for Sundays. I've have really bad English when I'm speaking into a microphone. Um, but it's like, wow, that's that's amazing that these people that that were known around, you know, the the um, Roman empire empire we were known around the empire as being like the filthiest right like the the most scummiest people you know were like finding redemption and righteousness you know in their church communities in their jesus communities you know so when i when i think of it putting it back in the context of where where this is written that that um, nobody in antioch would have just been called a christian because their parents were a Christian or their grandparents or because it was like the cultural thing and everybody was that way. You know, back then, I, I believe everyone who was going to be called a Christian um, is somebody who made a choice. And that choice meant they were going to live differently than the people around them. Um, you know, I was looking this up. I mean, Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And it was a crossroads of all of these different things going on, trade and, you know, commerce and whatnot. And so there are all kinds of ideas coming in constantly uh, to this area. And to have somebody who stands out, who says, we're going to live a certain way um, and we're not going to be causing trouble. We're not going to be bringing disrepute to anyone, uh, I'm sure would stand out. Um, and, and again, it was people that had to make a choice. So today, many people say, well, I'm a Christian. I mean, I've traveled to Central America on mission trips, for example, and many people claim to be part of a particular religion, but they don't really have much contact with that religion. They just have it by name because it's their culture. But that wasn't the way it was in the early church. It makes me wonder, hearing you talk about that, it makes me wonder about like, like I think about like Jewish people, like Jewish people today. Right. There are there are um, like super hyper, like uh, traditional Jewish people. Orthodox. Uh, right. Sure. Hasidic. Right. Orthodox. Yeah. And so and then there's people that are like occasional Jewish people that are both Jewish by faith and Jewish by ethnicity. Right. And then there's people that are just Jewish by ethnicity. Right. That they're like. And so. You know, to hear you talk about how, like, there's a lot of people in today's world where they're Christian because their folks were Christian, and their folks were Christian, and their folks' folks were Christian, where, boy, it's almost become an ethnicity more than it's become a belief system. And so, 
And I, and for me, I hate the idea of just doing something because my dad did it and his dad before him without it having any meaning to me. And so you could see where people maybe were, their parents went to church when they were kids and they're like, I saw what kind of bull crap that was. And I'm not, you know, I don't need that kind of hypocrisy or that kind of fakeness in my life. I, I want to know what's real and what I have control of. And so you can see where Christianity as a, as a belief system has kind of fallen into, you know, from an image standpoint, fallen into disrepair. Oh, sure. I, I, I mean, I can see that. And to me, it takes me back to the time of the Reformation. I mean, what, where did the, the Christian or, or Protestant, if you want to use that term, church ever get started? It was in reaction to people who were just sort of calling themselves part of a tradition without really necessarily being you know, uh, fully engaged with all that. And you, you got it because your parents got it. And, and to say that, no, you get to, you have to make a choice on your own. I mean, that's central to what we believe. What a horrible job the church must have been doing. Sorry, I've got all riled up there. Sorry. What a horrible job the church must have been doing to make people think that the faith has everything to do with where you are on a Sunday, what you wear to that place on Sunday. And if you meet certain criteria of the faith, like what a horrible, horrible job the church must have done if that's what people equate to the faith. If they don't know about the hope or if they don't know about the good news or if they don't know about the favor of God or they don't know about grace or they don't know about the challenge to be a better me so I can be a better me for, for a better world and I can be a better husband and a better dad and a better friend and a better brother and son. And like if, if that's never part of the vocabulary, if that's never part of the verbiage, but for sure get there on Sunday, for sure get your tithe or your offering and for sure make sure that you do this sacrament or that sacrament and light a candle and ring a bell. Like if you for sure do that, like, well, no wonder why people like are like, Stupid! I don't need you to do anything. Like, how, how have we lost handle on talking about the friendship of Jesus Christ and the hope that we can find in him and the, and the partnership of the Holy Spirit and the comfort and the grace of God the Father? Like, how did we get off track from that? Well, you, you might think we got off track in recent centuries or even in the last thousand years or something. But to me, it's really a matter of going way back, even at the time of Christ, there were people who thought it was all about rules. Um, and if you just follow enough rules and did everything, then you would be fine with God. But the message of the gospel is that, you know, all those things can help point us towards God, but they're not the way to satisfy uh, God in that sense. And so I think it's a human tendency to say, give me some rules, give me a manual, give me a guide that all I have to do is just do all these things. That way I don't have to think about the deeper uh, aspect of what is my relationship with God? How do I relate to him as a person? Um, and for, fortunately, that's the message of the gospel. I mean, that's the message I heard uh, at a point in my life, and I'm thankful for it. Sometime after Paul and Barnabas arrived, a group of Jesus followers from the Jerusalem church visited Antioch with a message from the Lord. They declared that a famine was on its way. Rather than responding with fear or panic, though, the Antioch Christians accepted this as an opportunity to prove their place in the church family, and they started gathering grain while the market remained stable. And it wasn't for themselves, but instead, it was in preparation for the day their brothers in Jerusalem, who drought would hit the hardest, would need it the most. Many of the Antioch believers were poor, but they all pooled together and put everything that they could into the famine fund week by week and appointed men from among them to travel throughout their region to buy whatever grain they could afford wherever they could find it stored. 
so, you know, Scott, when I hear this, I, it, I think you don't have to go very far to hear people make predictions about what's going to happen in our world. Just stand in line at the grocery store and, you know, such and such is going to happen when the calendar changes or with the new year or so-and-so's prophecy or, or something like that. And, and what's interesting to me in this story is that in Antioch, here, these people are identifying these Christians and, and they get a word and it actually does come true, you know, and it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. There's going to be some famine is these people put their I mean, they put their lives out on the line. They took money that they had, food that they had, and they got ready and then they sent it down to their brothers and sisters in need. And I have to imagine that really was a powerful message. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like I <clears throat> like sometimes I wish that there would be a way that like, like God would give us that kind of opportunity again, right? <laughs> Where we could go out onto a limb and say, listen, this is what's about to happen and this is going to happen so you'll know, right? And so, of course, it doesn't and God's like, why do you want to, like, I'm not a parlor trick, man. Like, I don't wanna, I'm not going to like, you know, do card tricks so that you can prove to your friends that I exist. Couldn't you live a life in such a way that shows them that? And so, you know, then I get put into my, you know, in my place. But you're right. I, I do think that must have been a fantastic way, you know, to, to point to God and say, you know, look, this is, you know, this is the, the knowledge that we had because of we're children of God. But then furthermore, I think what a great display for like, because if you can imagine the other Antiochians, like looking at them, look cross-eyed, like what kind of idiots are setting food aside or sending food to Jerusalem right now? Like what does Jerusalem have to do with us? Right. Like they're not, they're not just take care of yourself, like take care of number one. And I feel like that's like really where we're at in our world today, where people are like, you know, why do you care about anybody else? Take care of number one, like in this COVID season, right? Where people are wearing masks and you're like, this is stupid. Masks isn't going to do me any good. Nope, not doing you any good, but it's doing your neighbor good. You know what I mean? Because I was telling my wife this the other day, like I wear a mask and it's an N95 mask. So I kind of feel like I'm driving a Cadillac, but um, it doesn't fit on my face, right? Like it, no, it's not keeping germs from getting in my face because I, I look stupid without a beard, Jim. And if I shave my beard... It's not good. And so, but you know, so it's, I'm not wearing it for me. I'm wearing it so that in case I am carrying the COVID and I don't know it, so I don't breathe it on some old lady at the grocery store or at the gas station or whatever. Like that's why we're wearing masks, but that's not the society we live in where we put other people first. We constantly put ourselves first. So, so we are called to be counterculture for sure. And we of all people should be uh, uh, persons who are gladly following the, you know, what our government officials tell us to do when it comes to protection and that. I know there's a lot of debate about, about that, but as Christians, I think we do have a responsibility. Scripture tells us to really work with the government and, uh, and do, uh, and do what's best as long as it's not against our conscience or something like that. The thing I, I struggle with, with this passage though, is so, so who do I, who do I help? I mean, is it uh, just people in the church that I should be looking out for, or should I be helping people like everywhere, you know, or something? And I think Jesus kind of answered that question, you know, and he says like, who's my neighbor, you know, and here's a guy who had no ties with this in the good Samaritan story. I mean, he had no ties, you know, and yet he, uh, he helped a person who is in need. And so I think this is where we really have to be in tune with the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Lord, here, there are lots of needs everywhere. Show me which ones are the ones that you're calling me to be part of. Yeah, I, those. I love that. I, 
you know, and sometimes I feel like in, in church, I feel like we, we talk about the Holy Spirit and being compelled by the Holy Spirit or being guided by the Holy Spirit or listening to the Holy Spirit. And it makes sense to us in our vernacular. But then I wonder if that's one of those words that I wish people could rethink or reexamine before they just assume what we what we mean when we say Holy Spirit. Because I feel like you know, the Holy, like I'm, I'm not, I don't have to like light eight candles and sit in a circle that I've drawn on the floor and, you know, conjure up something with a Ouija board that really it's a matter of being in touch and in tune with God, my maker, my creator, my friend. Right. And I feel like, you know, like the Holy Spirit is really just like the, the friendship and the personality and the, and the, and the conscience of God. And so that's what I'm trying to take on. That's what I, that's what I'm trying to listen to. Like more than like a ghost, right. Or a, you know, something netherworldly when in fact, you know, it's like when I, when I act in goodwill for my wife, right? Like if I, if I do something because this is what, like if I go help her mom with something, I'm, I'm doing it not because I'm waiting for the spirit of Kate to tell me to do it, but I know that that's what Kate would want, right? I know that I'm compelled by, you know, what Kate would do. And, you know, to your point though, like, I feel like you're right that we are supposed to be helping everybody. And I, it reminds me of a post I made just recently about how, you know, Jesus was famous for noticing the people that no one else was noticing, right? Like he, like he paid attention to people. And like, I want more of that in my life. I need to notice the people that no one's noticing. Like I think about Zacchaeus, right? Or I think about the lady with the blood, or I think about the Samaritan woman at the well. All these people were outsiders that no one noticed, or even if they saw them, they didn't really even see them. I need to see those people. You know, I need to notice those people and, and I need to help those people. You know, like, I'm not trying to, trying to toot my own horn, right? But like, if you, if you're somewhere and someone needs something, like, why would you not just help that person? Like, why would you not, I was in a quick trip not that long ago and uh, this guy was having a hard time getting 10 bucks out of the ATM machine, right? And the ATMs, of course, if you know, you know that quick trip has nothing to do with the ATMs, that the ATMs are there, it's a third party, something, something. And so he was asking the quick trip people about it and they were getting aggravated and he was getting aggravated, right? And so I'm like, why would I not just give that guy 10 bucks? If he's here to buy milk and bread for his family and now this, you know, faulty ATM is keeping him from that. Why would I not just give him 10 bucks, right? Not like I'm loaded, right? But I mean, it's 10 bucks. And so I just feel like we should be, our head should be on a sh- swivel is what I almost said. Like a, which is like the, <laughs> which is like the pig Latin way to say swivel. Anyway, um, anyway, not pig Latin. What was I thinking of? Something else. Anyway, uh, but my, I feel like my head should be on a swivel. I should, if someone says something and I can do something to meet that need or meet that pain or help that pain, then I should totally be doing that, whether they're a believer or not. So, you know, talking about the Holy Spirit is, um, you know, to me, the Holy Spirit is sort of like um, uh, in, many, in many of our lives missing in action. I mean, we just don't even give it much thought. But, you know... Um, when I think about the Holy Spirit, I think of, you know, the names that the Holy Spirit has. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and you know, this is where I had a chance to study some of these in terms of like the languages. And, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is, quote, called alongside. And so if you think of the Holy Spirit as like you're walking along with your friend and you're just kind of having a conversation, um, it's going to be very different than saying, oh, I've got to get into a particular setup where I can now somehow communicate with the Holy Spirit because... This is the 
This is God right with us and, and available. The thing that I find helpful is to keep God's word close at hand. Um, and that only comes if you take the time to read it and to, to study it. Um, I, um, I like to write it out on little cards. And so if, I, if something comes up, I'll look at, at an index card that I've written out that uh, for the day that kind of guides me and directs my, my talk to God um, you know, with the Holy Spirit. So um, it is a great thing and, uh, to, uh, to have that relationship where you can talk to God and say, Lord, I don't even know what to say anymore, but the Holy Spirit, you can help me, you know, because you know me better than I do in many ways. From Jerusalem, he would lead teams of Greek-speaking Jews to the unreached, untouched, uttermost parts of the empire. And they would be joined by pagan converts to carry the message of Jesus farther than had ever been accomplished or had even been imagined before. All winter after Paul and his companions returned from Jerusalem, a great sense of expectation and energy buzzed throughout the church in Antioch. And it was during a time of prayer and fasting that the Holy Spirit revealed his next step for them. Luke records the message that the church received. God said, set Barnabas and Paul apart for me. I want them to do the work to which I have called them. The apostles would not be rogue freelancers. They'd be representatives and extension of the Antioch Christians. Paul, he had found his pocket of people. So I, I think it's, it's, it's very great to hear about Paul and his pocket of people. And, you know, reading scripture, there are some passages where it's like, wow, he has 15 or 20 different people that he's ministered with or worked with. And I couldn't say anything quite like that. But there are times when I find a few believers that I can work with um, on a regular basis uh, in some particular setting or time. And it's a wonderful experience. Um, uh, I've seen this on mission trips, for example. I've seen it um, in ministering in the church. Um, and more recently, um, this is a shameless plug for Alpha because Alpha is a place where you can be in a pocket of people who uh, are also seeking to know God and to know more about him. Yeah, I feel like there's some there's been some. Yes, you're right about Alpha. And if you don't know about Alpha, you should totally write to Jim or me and find out about it, because, man, it is a it is a it is a critical cog in the machine of my faith, Alpha. And even though I've been through it you know, two dozen times or whatever, it's still just, I'm either finding out something new or I'm rehearing something that I'd forgotten or I'm, I'm like, uh, reinforcing, you know, a thought. And so like, I love Alpha. I, I think Alpha is a fantastic thing. I, I was about to say that I feel like there's, you know, a popular, um, theme in, you know, in, in the evangelical world where like you could do church by yourself, that you don't need to do church with people that you could, that you can, you can do Christianity, you can do your faith, you can do it all on your own. And I don't, I don't know that that's possible. Like I for sure know that it's good to have alone time. And I know that Jesus spent, you know, a lot of time alone, but like if Jesus felt like we were supposed to do this whole thing on our own, if we were supposed to do it without a pocket of people, why did he have a pocket of 12 plus, right? Like 12 are like, is, is like, his dudes, right? But then there was always more than that, right? Because it doesn't count Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. It doesn't count, you know, all the other friends that they had that weren't, you know, the 12. But like, I feel like 
he was all about the pocket. And so, yeah, like, I mean, Jim, do you think that like faith without a pocket is even possible? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, there there are many people, and and throughout uh, the history of Christianity, there have been people who have set themselves as, apart uh, because they 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 felt they were called to uh, like to be in, in their own little pocket, so to speak, all by themselves. You know, this goes way back in the early church, even a couple centuries after Christ was was on earth. I mean, there were people doing that already. Um, but I think more, um, I had an interesting experience at the men's retreat uh, this year that, um, you know, we don't know a huge number of people at Life Church. It's a huge church. And and by by making it small through the Alpha and a couple other things, you know, it's been good. But I, I kind of went into the men's retreat not really knowing. I mean, I didn't know the guy that was my roommate and um, I knew just a couple people there. Um, but by the end of the retreat, I realized that um, I was surrounded by men who think like me, who love God, who who want to know God and serve him better. You know, all around me, there were men like that. I just didn't know it. And so my thought is that we need to get out of our little micro pocket, so to speak, and take opportunities. You know, um, the time is going to come when we're able to uh, lighten up on the uh, the distant, physical distancing, stuff like that. And um, what I've noticed in this time of separation from others, it's actually drawn me closer to some people, uh, people that we do Zoom calls, for example, that, you know, we could have done this anytime we wanted for the last year, but um, but we've done it every week now for the last four weeks in my family, you know, and how wonderful is that to contact your siblings from all around the country. Um, but we can do that within our church too. You just have to put yourself out there and find out who these people are and uh, build your pocket, so to speak. Despite any objections, Paul had no intention of stopping. He was determined to press on the work it laid inland in the Roman province of Galatia, beyond a barrier of mountains stretched across the narrow plains, steeper and more fierce than the eastern Tarsus mountains in Tarsus, and more terrifying than any of the summits known to the Cypriot Barnabas or the Judean John Mark. It was here, fearful of the challenge that lay ahead and re resentful of the fact that Barnabas had surrendered his leadership to Paul that John Mark stopped. He turned around and he returned to Jerusalem. It left Paul feeling abandoned and betrayed, and it opened a wound in him that took years to heal and would ultimately lead to the destruction of his relationship with Barnabas when years later they would have irreconcilable differences again over John Mark. Over that second incident, they would never speak again. It was in this moment with this movement that John Mark, he forfeited his right to move forward. He failed to see the greatest move of God the world had ever seen. And he fractured the foundation of a relationship, not just in his own life, but in the lives of others. And it was all because of fear and a lack of submission to authority. So, so this is a really interesting passage of scripture of, of uh, Paul and Barnabas. Uh, separating. And you know, I first uh, really looked into this passage um, many years ago when we were at another church um, where the pastor and the associate got into a disagreement about something. And the next thing we heard, the associate was like 
not just out of town, he was like out of state. Um, nobody quite knew what happened, you know, or anything. And, um, and I thought, um, this is, that's, not how, that's not how our church is supposed to be. That's not how God's people are supposed to get along with each other. So I looked at this passage and have been studying it from the standpoint of leadership and, and trying to understand it. And, you know, this whole thing with John Mark, for example, um, you know, if we were to stop the story in um, Acts, what, chapter 15 or something like that, um, this guy would go down as one of the failures uh, of the early Christian church. But then we'd have to go back and think, well, then who wrote the gospel of Mark? Because it was him. You know, and who did Paul call to come and um, give him comfort when Paul was in prison years later? Um, and it was John Mark again. And so to me, it says uh, several things. First of all, the Apostle Paul was incredibly strategic. You know, he knew where he was called to serve and he needed a team that he could count on. Um, and that's the same thing for us in our modern world, too. I mean, our leaders um, are called to lead us and they need teams that they can work with. And sometimes, you know, it might be the right person, but they're on the wrong team. And coming from you know, being a Packer fan, you know, I'm very familiar. Sometimes a player thrives in a new team setting because they just fit better. Um, so that shouldn't keep us from moving forward in life, uh, but it should keep us mindful that sometimes, you know, we might not be the right person for a particular team. Um, and so then find out where God does have us, you know, in place. You know, it's good to remember that Barnabas and John Mark, I mean, they were cousins, so they had this family tie going on. And another way to look at this is that instead of one missionary team going off to uh, the provinces of Galatia, which is in modern day Turkey, um, now you had the, the team basically split. So now you had two teams going on to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean, you know, and um, and we know that later on that can, gets to be a very important place. I mean, that's where Titus, I think, became, uh, you know, the bishop or something. And so, um, so don't give up when, when things seem to fall apart, you know. Um, so don't give up when things seem to, to kind of go awry because uh, God has a bigger plan for us than we ourselves have. And it should also tell us, I think, about the Apostle Paul. Uh, something I've really enjoyed about this series so far, which is that, you know, it really makes me think about him as a person. Yes, he's, a, you know, uh, within my, in my church background, he, he's a saint. And in everybody's background, he's one of the most uh, influential figures in the whole history of our, of our faith, our Christianity. Um, but he was also a person, you know, and, um, and, you know, no matter where we are in our lives, there are things about us that we're going to have strong emotions to, you know, we're going to have, and in some cases we're going to have arguments or disagreements and maybe it's even our fault sometimes in my case, probably more often than, than not, but, but, um, but God's not done with us. Um, and take encouragement from the story of John Mark. God wasn't done with him um, because he eventually proved himself to be a, a, a very influential and important figure in our faith tradition. Yeah, I love that. I love that perspective, uh, Jim. I think that's because I feel like <clears throat> it would be easy to walk away uh, from Sean's message and say, well, I mean, Barnabas and John Mark, you know, losers, right? <laughs> and like we're only we're on we're all on team Paul, right? <clears throat> And sometimes we do that, like, in our church world. Like, I feel like too often we look at our leadership, our pastors, 
are, you know, and like, we're not at church for them. Like, it's not, I mean, certainly you come to a church, you land at a church, you start going to church because you like how a particular pastor teaches or what he wears, I suppose, or how the worship band plays or something, right? But the second you start making connections, right, you're, you're at a place where God wants you. And so sometimes I feel like we sometimes blindly follow or blindly leave our pastors or our churches because they're human and we like are disappointed in what they're doing or we wish they would do it a certain way. And we got to be sensitive, you know, to your point of like, how does the spirit compelling us in that? You know what I mean? Like, it's easy for us to say, well, I don't like how they, and I wish they would. And why don't they ever, right? Like, it's easy to do that. And I, my whole life, that's how church people talked all the time. Like they got sick and tired of their pastors, right? And then they moved or whatever. Like, hey, uh-uh. Like, I mean, it's not that there's anything wrong with moving, but you move when God wants you to move, not when you feel like you're fed up. And, you know, so when I think about John Mark saying, listen, I'm not going over those mountains, man. <laughs> Good luck, bro. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm out of here. Um, there's, there's one other thing about this story, though, that I think we can take encouragement. Um, and that is that, um, you know, Barnabas was very influential in the early church. You know, he was actually, it was always Barnabas and Paul until this passage, and then all of a sudden it's Paul and Barnabas. But, um, you know, they say Paul was a man with a mission, and certainly with his missionary trips, and he's a, he had this strategic vision. And that... Barnabas, um, you know, his other name was the son of encouragement. All right. Um, and, you know, maybe we could reflect a little bit on the way that Barnabas, in a sense, maybe maybe rescued John Mark in, a, in the sense that he got him into ministry. He saw the person, you know, not the right person to go on this adventuresome missionary journey, um, but, um, but the right person for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are people in our lives who are encouragers and, you know, we can be thankful, uh, for that. Um, and hopefully we can be that way for others as well. Yeah. I love that. Jim, this was fun. I really enjoyed it. Did you enjoy it? I hope you did. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Like maybe you can come back again and we'll do it again. Um, yeah, I would love to do that again. (laughs) I wasn't sure what that pause was. I was scared that he was going to say, nope, fat chance. I'm not going over that mountain, dude. You can forget it. That's not what Jim was saying. So, uh, no, but I would say that, um, you know, with these messages, they are so rich in information that, um, you know, it's good to take the time to go back and read them, read the passages of scripture that they're based on and start uh, getting that capacity that we're, we're exposed to of reading a bit between the lines and saying, you know, what were they actually thinking? You know, what did mm-hmm. it mean to those people way back then? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a good step to get a person into reading the Bible for themselves. Yeah, and I guess I'd also encourage you, like, yes, like, get into the passage, but also, like, rewatch it. Like, it's, you know, the pastor's part, like, once you get past, like, the welcome and the, you know, follow me here and all that other stuff, like, it's it's 20 minutes, man. It's a drive to work. So if you can listen to it again, I find that, especially so far in this Roman series, I don't get it all in one take. I've got to I've got to listen or watch a second, maybe even a third time. This was for sure three times before I picked up what he was laying down. And I feel like I'm kind of a smart guy, but... Anyway, it was great to have you, Jim. I hope you come back again. You guys, listen, if you enjoyed uh, this podcast, please subscribe on uh, the podcast platform of your choice and maybe share it with friends. Uh, We'll see you next time. See ya.